What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Stocks are jumping today as we close out a brutal week with everything from big cap tech to the airlines, Las Vegas Sands leading the way today, even with oil and gasoline prices surging once again. As for investors, one of our guests says her client inflows are up and outflows are virtually non-existent. A look at which names she is buying right now. Plus another twist in the Twitter saga. Elon Musk says the deal is on hold. Then he says he's still committed to the acquisition. The stock, the worst name in the S&P right now. Could it really be curtains for his takeover? And a defensive name, a dividend player, a disruptor, and a disaster. Those are today's three buys and a bail. Can you guess them? But first, we begin with these markets and the 50. Dom Chu with the numbers. Oh, I, I love it. The 50 there. And let's talk about this markets this week because it's gone from bailing on stocks to buying stocks just in the matter of 24 hours. So if you take a look at the markets overall, broad-based, every sector in the green right now, and the leads are being, the lead is their discretionary in energy. The laggards, even though they're green, utilities and consumer staples, the more defensively oriented sectors. So we'll watch the way that dynamic plays out. Now, with regard to the Dow Industrials, the S&P and the NASDAQ, we're up about 1.5% for the Dow. The S&P is up 2.5% and near 4% gains for the NASDAQ. And by the way, for those keeping track at home, That means the fall from record highs for the Dow now stands at roughly 13 percent, 16, 17 percent for the S&P 500 and roughly 27 percent below record highs for the composite index. On a sector perspective, over the last week, maybe no surprise that the best performing sector is communication services. Some of those beaten up technology names and whatnot are helping to kind of move that uh, at least a little bit higher, just marginally lower right now in this trade over one week. Meanwhile, technology and consumer discretionary, two of the worst performers. Many of those mega cap names are in those particular parts of that market. So we'll watch that. And then Perhaps the ETF that has become emblematic, almost iconic, of the growth trade and then subsequent fall is the ARK Tech Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK. If you look at the chart here, from the highs that we saw this past year down to where we are now, this is a fund that's lost two-thirds of its value. But being up 12% today, this brings its two-day winning streak to almost 17 18%, and 20% off the lows that we saw intraday yesterday and some interesting moves on the dip here. Kathy Wood at ARK Invest for this particular fund. Kelly has bought on the dip shares of Coinbase and Unity Software just in the last couple of days. We'll see how that ARK trade plays out over the coming weeks and whether they're staying power there. Kel, back over It is a bellwether and Coinbase shares are ripping today, Dom. Thank you very much. All right, consumer sentiment this morning dropped to a decade low and perhaps it's no surprise as we run through some of the data this week, uh, starting with that consumer sentiment report, which sank five points to a reading of 59.1, again, a 10-year low. This as gasoline prices in the U.S. hit a fresh record high today and futures suggest they're going to get higher as we get into summer. 
That has consumer inflation expectations remaining stubbornly high at 5.4% for the coming year. That's a headache for the Fed. And it comes after we got the producer price index surging 11% from a year ago. The consumer price index also higher than expected, especially the core, which was up six-tenths of a percent just last month. The headline up 8.3% on the year. Add it all up and wages aren't keeping pace. Consumer credit is on the rise again and consumer sentiment is tanking as the midterms approach and the debate over recession intensifies. On that note, my next guest says the genie's out of the bottle on inflation and history shows getting it back in is going to be painful. Joining me is Aswath Demoter and he's NYU Stern School of Business professor. Aswath, it's great to have you here and you went through, looked at a lot of the data and you're not feeling that optimistic uh, about the market, would you say? Well, I think it's a market that's driven almost entirely by what happens to inflation. I mean, here's where we are. We've come off a decade of uh, probably the lowest inflation we've had in the last 80 years, 1.5%. But now, if you look at actual inflation at about 8%, the market's trying to find its legs as to where between the 1.5 and 8% we're going to settle. We're not going to go back to 1.5. I don't think think we're going to end up at 8. But I think until we know that, we're going to see the back and forth in the market. So let's talk about the possible range of outcomes uh, that you think investors need to be cognizant of, because you do paint scenarios that are everything from stocks do pretty well and, and, you know, it's kind of hunky-dory to, you know, asset prices could drop another 50 percent from here. Right. The the most benign scenario is that inflation fades really quickly and that you go back to 2 percent to 2.5 percent. I think that scenario is getting, the probability of that scenario is getting smaller by the day. But that is the only benign scenario that almost all of the inflation is transitional. And once it's gone, we're going to go back to where we were. And if you truly believe that, then stocks are back. But any other scenario in the middle, there's going to be an adjustment phase here where interest rates have to adjust, stock prices have to adjust, and everything that you see as metrics, price earnings ratios, you know, whatever multiples you end up using, will have to reflect the new reality. What would you say to investors right now? So how do they proceed in the in this environment? Don't be casual about inflation. Don't assume that the Fed is going to somehow find a way to control inflation. And that's why I call it the genie out of the bottle. Once inflation is out, central banks really cannot control it without putting the economy into recession. So that's why almost every aspect of this economy, from earnings to, to interest rates to whether we're in a recession, is going to be driven by what happens to inflation. And that said, do we all just have to sit back and wait? Or, you know, do we all need to be part of the guessing game, trying to figure out based on metals prices one day versus energy prices the next and reading, you know, what Mester says on the one hand versus what Powell did or didn't say about the 75 basis point hike last night? Or is it, you know, long term inflation expectations or which break even measures? I mean, people are certainly trying to obsess over uh, this trajectory. I think rather than listen to what the Fed is saying and any of the people in the Fed are saying, I'd say watch the watch T-bond rates, 10-year rates, 30-year rates, because those are going to tell you where we're going to end up. I mean, the fact is we've doubled the Treasury note rate. The 10-year rate has doubled over the last four and a half months. That's that's unheard of in the U.S. You don't see that much of of an increase in rates. I think that's where you're going to see inflation expectations finally settle in. So rather than look to the Fed, look to the Treasury market, because that's where you're going to get early signals of where we're going. So you think the key to this market and and to inflation is what happens with, let's call it the 10-year from here? Yeah, because the 10-year is going to reflect where our long-term expectations end up at. If they're going to end up at 4%, 
we have a lot more pain in front of us because that's a that's another one percent move in the ten year rate, and that's another twenty twenty five percent drop in the S and P five hundred, and that's why this whole thing is about expected inflation and where we end up at. So, if you are as an investor think you have a pretty strong take on okay, I think rates have peaked, I think uh, inflation has peaked, you know, then that you can predicate your, your market outlook on. But um, I guess my point is it's as hard to forecast rates as it is to predict inflation or any of these other variables. And that leaves a lot of people feeling hopeless. So, so should they move to the sidelines? Do they stay in the market? Yeah, the problem with moving to the sidelines is getting back in is going to be really difficult. That's always been the problem with cashing out. Is cashing out is the easy part. Cashing back in is really tough to do. So I know people who cashed out in 2010 and never got back in the market for the right. next decade. You're going to cash out. You need to have a trigger as to when you cash back in or you're going to stay in cash for a really long time. Would you, if you could quickly before we go, kind of rank equities in the grand scheme of asset classes, including precious metals or crypto or real estate or, you know, I'm trying to think of what else, you know, you, you could throw in the basket these days. How would you rank the attractiveness of these asset classes right now? I put real estate above equities, but cryptos, I'd put at the very bottom of the barrel. Cryptos, we've discovered, behave like very risky equities. They're like high-tech, high-tech. They're not collectibles. They don't behave like gold. So at some point in time, we've got to let go of this notion that Bitcoin is a collectible because it certainly isn't behaving like one. But I'd put real estate above equities. But real estate is not going to be as good a hedge as it was in the 1970s. We've, in a sense, ruined it by securitizing it. But I think, in a sense, we've got to go back to real assets. But if inflation is back, it's really difficult to find a hiding place. All right. And again, if you want to read more about this, you wrote a great piece about it the other day. It goes into a lot of history and a lot of examples. Aswat, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Aswat Demodarin from NYU. Now, despite stocks tanking, bearish sentiment increasing, and plenty of recession chatter like you just heard, my next guest says she's seeing increasing inflows from her clients and almost no outflows at all uh, from equities. Joining me now is Nancy Tangler. She is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. So, Nancy, what is what are you seeing in the real world as a counterpoint to the, the concerns Aswat just outlined that we are all very much aware of? Right. Well, Kelly, as you know, I mean, the market's always climbing a wall of worry. This time it's uh, particularly steep um, and partially self-inflicted by Washington policy from the Fed and fiscal. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that individuals understand and have learned over the years that these kinds of uh, sell-offs present an opportunity. Now, I don't think this is 99 or 2000 and nor the years that followed, which were just abysmal. I, I think it's more analogous to previous bear, bear markets that we've seen that are, you know, this one's a little bit longer than most. I mean, in 2020, we had 33 trade, uh, 33 calendar days and 23 tw trading days. And that was sort of easy to digest, easier to digest. This one's at 99 and 73, or I, I counted yesterday. I can't remember at the moment, um, but much longer, much more of a grind and, and it wears investors out. But the smart money, and, and I view our clients as smart money, are, are starting to come back into the market. And so just in the last two weeks, we've seen um, significant flows uh, from our clients, and, and we haven't had anyone liquidate or uh, leave us. They, they are sitting pat. 
Part of that's because we use options as, as a um, protection policy, but mostly because our strategies are designed to go down less than the market and our clients understand that. And so it's it's been, it was a surprise to me. It's a, it's a turning point of sorts. I don't know exactly what it means. You know, I almost take it as a bad sign, right? Because if you were saying, you know, no one wants to own anything, no one even wants to like take a call about this market, then we'd go, okay, well, we know sentiment can't get any worse than this. And it would feel like one of those generational bottoms like in 2009. And what you're describing kind of makes sense to me. I mean, it, it feels like people going, well, I know all of these problems with equities, but I look around and I don't really see anywhere else to go, especially like that's what, you know, inflation makes us feel a little different. Like you can't just go to the sidelines and go, yeah, I'll just check in on the market in a decade. Right. Well, and remember, too, that, you know, stocks are the ultimate hedge against inflation, but companies that grow their dividends um, are really important during periods like this because your income is growing in your portfolio if you own the right stocks faster than inflation. And uh, they provide a, a, a modicum of uh, protection when the market declines. So I, I think people are shifting as well. I mean, we have growth strategies, too. Um, they've done better than the NASDAQ, but, you know, that's not saying much. Um, but <laughs> But the value strategies have held up very nicely, and uh, that gives you that, that launches you from a better place when the market takes off. The two sectors you favor are typically ones that are treated as trade-offs and not a tandem trade: energy and technology. And you say the key to that is productivity. Why? Well, fewer employees per dollar produced. And I think in this environment where there's a labor shortage and company, you know, margins are at historic highs still, even in Q1, there's going to be pressure on margins. Companies can't raise prices forever. Cure for high prices is high prices, right? And so we think the next shoe to drop uh, as they voraciously try to protect their margins is going to be, we're going to see an acceleration in in layoffs. And and I don't, I don't mean like 1970s status. I just mean that at the rate of change is going to increase for, for companies to lay off. We've already begun to see it in many of the stay-at-home names. So consequently, we want companies that are focused on improving productivity and digitization. So I, I gave this example, I think, the last time I was on with you, but it's it just emblematic. Uh, public storage, fit over 50% of their new clients now are signing up without ever having uh, human interaction. Hmm. And we see that across sectors. And I think that's very important uh, because it, it will allow companies to maintain flexibility uh, as earnings slow, which we know they're going to do. Yeah. And some examples of tech names you like, Palo Alto, ServiceNow, Microsoft, Broadcom, Texas Instruments, and then EOG in the energy space uh, for some individual ideas. Nancy, we'll leave it there. We'll check back in soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Nancy Tangler with Laffer Tangler Investments. Coming up, Elon Musk pumping the brakes on his Twitter deal, but says he's still committed to making it work. What happens next? We'll discuss with Twitter shares down almost 7% right now. And Tesla shares are meanwhile down 30% since Musk took a stake in Twitter. We'll talk about the implications of that, even with the 7% rebound today. Apple also back in the green today, though it's on pace for its worst week since March of 2020, the pandemic. We'll look at why what's happening with this tech giant really gets to the core of what's happening with these markets. And as we head to break, here's a quick look on the major averages. Uh, the, SM, uh, the Nasdaq's point gain is larger than the Dow's right now. Nasdaq up 434 or 3.8%. We're back in a moment. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Elon Musk's plan to buy Twitter for $44 billion, taking another big twist today. Musk tweeting this morning, Twitter deal temporarily on hold pending details supporting calculation that spam slash fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users, claiming that maybe that number is a lot higher. Now, this tweet sent Twitter shares sinking more than 18% pre-market. You can see that big decline. But two hours later, Musk tweeted again saying, quote, still committed to acquisition. That cut losses pretty much in half. You can see the bump around 7.30 a.m. there on that chart. Uh, it's currently down about 9%, making it the worst stock in the S&P. And there's more than a $9 billion gap now between where shares are valued and how much Musk agreed to pay at $54.20 a share in April. The stock's trading just over 40. For more, I'm joined now by Axios Media reporter Sarah Fisher and big technology founder Alex Kantrowitz, who is also a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Sarah, I'll start with you. Um, first of all, can you clarify for us, if this deal falls apart, does Musk pay the breakup fee or does he receive it? Well, I'm assuming that he's going to be the one. I mean, at the end of the day, he has had ample time to ask management for statistics around bots and spam accounts. And so if he's claiming that that's the reason that he would be putting a deal on pause, I would assume that he would be the one to pay that breakup fee, Kelly. But I don't see at this point Musk totally walking away from the deal. I think more likely what you see happening is, look, he could be sending a warning shot or he could be trying to renegotiate, keep this price a little bit lower than that initial $54 per share bid. Right. Alex, why should he pay 54.20 when the stock is trading at 40 and there were didn't seem like uh, any other suitors? Absolutely right. He shouldn't pay that amount of money. And any one of us, if we made a deal, you know, and then the market collapsed, we would try to renegotiate as well. And that's what I think Elon's doing. I think the market has it exactly right, putting Twitter shares down 9%. So they're expecting that the deal will close, but it will be at a discount compared to what Elon agreed to. Now, he said, you know, this is my last and final offer. I don't want to play the back and forth game. But that was at the end of a 10-year bull run. We're now in the middle of the beginning of what might be a bear market. Uh, and so, of course, Elon's going to pay less. And so I do think the deal will still close. I think the market has it right, but he's just not going to pay that 54.20. Legally, Sarah, not that that stopped him in the past, but what are the options for that price to be renegotiated once the initial deal is reached? Well, really, he has to decide by the board. I mean, at this point, Elon Musk has said that he's unwilling to budge, but the language today sounds a lot like he is willing to move a lot further down. I think it's just a determination of what the board's willing to accept. Now, what's complicated about this, Kelly, is that originally at that $54 bid, you did have some investors that were trying to rebuke the deal saying, hey, 
We were trading at $60 a few months ago. But to Alex's point, the market is so different. I actually think the board would be you know, very wise to accept the deal, even if it's at the low 40s, even if it's at high 30s, because at this point, it doesn't look like Twitter is going to get much momentum moving forward. Alex, can he come in and just unilaterally say, never mind, I'm offering 4420 now? I mean, sure, he can threaten to pay that breakup fee and say, listen, the best that you're going to get is this discounted price that I'm offering to you. And the board would be hard pressed to turn him down. I mean, look at what's happening in the stock market right now. There's not a lot of leeway for companies that have poor, historically poor performance and are trying to get the market to trust them, which is the case with Twitter. So if Elon says, listen, I'm willing to pay that, that breakup fee unless you come down, you know, I think the board would be hard pressed to say no. He has all the leverage in this situation, given the fact that the market is tanking the way that it is. And I expect him to be successful here in terms of his quest to take the price down. And what are the implications, Sarah, of the drop in shares of Tesla at the same time and the extent to which it sounds like he's trying to renegotiate financing uh, to make it less credit driven, for lack of a better word? Well, at first, Tesla shares took a hit, of course, because there was concerns amongst investors that they were going to have a part-time CEO, which is, of course, ironic because that was the criticism of Jack Dorsey when he was running Twitter. You saw shares go up today because I think that they were optimistic that if that deal was dropped, they'd have a CEO that'd be paying attention to their company full-time. Now, of course, there's also the situation where what happens if Tesla stock continues to sink and Elon Musk keeps pulling out shares? What are the implications for that? I think at this point, Tesla's investors are kind of on a holding pattern. I think his follow-up tweet around 7.44 a.m. saying, hey, I'm still taking this bid seriously, kind of gotten Tesla investors realizing that they may have gotten their hopes up just two hours before. What are the odds at this point, Alex, that the Twitter deal entirely falls through? I mean, they're higher than they were yesterday. But I also think that um, there's a, maybe a, a direct correlation between um, or, or an inverse correlation between Tesla's stock going down and the probability of of the Twitter deal falling apart. I mean, if I think Sarah's right. You know, you look at the, the price of Tesla right now, it seems like at a lower price, Elon can still squeak through the Twitter deal. What happens if it drops another $100 or $200? If it gets to that point, it's really hard to see this happening. So, you know, personally, I'm watching the Tesla stock and gauging that, uh, that gauging its performance to determine whether I think this will go down. Right now, I still think there's a chance that it happens. I still, I still think it's likely to happen. But, you know, we're we're in we're in a, um, a downturn right now. And if that persists, it could just take the deal right off the table. Could uh, Twitter sue him, Sarah, if he walks away from the deal, as our Alex Sherman has reported? I mean, I guess they could. But the problem is, if Elon walks out of the deal, what's next for Twitter? I mean, they could try to sue him and try to get him in position him to come back to the table. What's next after that? I mean, they're going to be staving off likely a bunch of private equity bidders. I think the most rational thing that Twitter and its board can do right now is what Parag actually did yesterday, which is conduct business as usual. You know, sources that tell us that the reason he laid off or fired those two executives yesterday, put a hiring freeze in, is because he's trying to conduct and operate this company as if there isn't these massive changes going around uh, about. And the reason he wants to do that is if this bid walks, uh, you know, fails and Elon walks, uh, or if there's another investor that comes in, he wants to continue to keep positioning this company for the long term. And I think that's probably the best thing that both Parag and the board can do right now. Oh, it's fascinating. Guys, thank you both uh, for all the context today. We appreciate it. Sarah Fisher and Alex Kantrowitz. 
Coming up, this stock has been a disaster this year, but it is up 30% today. One of our guests called it yesterday. We have the name and why it's moving sharply higher next. Plus, Americans are now spending $125 million more every day on gasoline than they did just last month. In fact, gas prices hit a fresh all-time high today. A look at what some in Congress are proposing to police what they say is price gouging. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Actually, a lot of green there today, led by uh, Nike and Salesforce. Merck, Amgen, and Johnson & Johnson are the biggest decliners. And Boeing has now turned negative. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's up 402. At the session highs, we were up 545. And the Nasdaq is the biggest point and percent gainer today. It's up 3.8% right now. Here are some of the movers we're checking on this hour. Big Cap Tech is seeing a nice rebound. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, all with gains of 3% or more, uh, except for Microsoft. They're about 2% and change. Apple's trying to avoid its worst week since March 2020. Our mystery chart into the break was Affirm. That stock soaring after blowing past estimates and saying they've extended their relationship with Spotify. Our analyst yesterday was very bullish on the name going into results. Affirm up 28% to $23 today. Coinbase is also spiking as Bitcoin makes a comeback. Even with today's move of 23%, the stock is still down 30% this week. It's trading around 72. And the alt food names are seeing some love in a sharp reversal. Beyond Meat and Oatly both soaring by around 20%. Beyond sank to new lows earlier this week after weak results. And the travel trade is also working with airlines, hotels, cruises, and casinos higher across the board. In Las Vegas Sands case, up 13%. It's the best performer on the S&P. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, three passengers on a train in Germany overpowered a man who injured five people with a knife. One of those passengers was an off-duty police officer who was also one of those wounded in the attack. Police say the suspect is a 31-year-old male who was born in Iraq and had been investigated in the past for possible Islamic extremism. But they say they don't know yet the man's motives. Russia suffered heavy losses when a pontoon bridge they were building over a river was destroyed by Ukraine's military, which released a video showing the aftermath. British defense officials say trying to get across a river in a war, war zone is always extremely risky and indicates Russian commanders are under a lot of pressure to make progress in eastern Ukraine. And for the first time in almost three months, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has spoken with his Russian counterpart. The Pentagon says Austin urged Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu 
to accept an immediate ceasefire and stress the importance of keeping communication lines open. And tonight on the news, uh, outrage in the medical community over the upcoming sentencing of a nurse convicted of a felony for accidentally killing a patient by giving her the wrong drug. Back to you, Kelly. Tyler, thank you very much, and we'll see you soon. Still ahead, if it's Friday, it's three buys and a bail. Today, we're tackling the four Ds, defensive, dividend, disruptor, and disaster. We have the names to buy and the one to avoid next. And during May, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage and feature some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's Wall Street Journal reporter Gunjan Banerjee. One thing that both my mom and my dad really emphasized while I was growing up was education. I know that was one of the big reasons that they moved to America was to give me and my sister access to the best education possible. And I watched them, you know, while I was growing up, move to a totally new country, not knowing the language, not knowing anyone, and kind of having to build up their lives from scratch. And I've carried those lessons with me throughout my life. Welcome back. Stocks are staging quite a rebound today, but we're still well lower on the week. So what are the buys and what is one trade to avoid? Our next guest suggests what we're calling the four Ds, a defensive, a dividend, a disruptor, and a disaster. Joining us now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors with our three buys and a bail. Gina, welcome. Let's get right to it. Your first buy is Walmart, which is outpacing the averages with a nearly 2% gain on the year. So why this one? So Walmart is a stock that is normally very defensive, but in this pandemic, they have played both sides of it. They brought up their e-commerce game just before the pandemic hit and managed to participate in the pandemic. They still got hit, but now they're playing the reopening game. And if anybody can handle supply chain problems, it's Walmart. They boast one of the top logistics teams in the world. And so this is a stock that we think can manage and navigate the risks and still give you defensive returns. All right. So Walmart is your first pick. It's uh, continuing to perform well and, and play both sides, if you will. Let's move on to Clorox, which is getting more and more love lately because the shares are on pace for a second straight week of gains, even though they slashed earnings guidance by nearly 20 cents when they reported last week. And the yield, that's where it's our, our D for dividend. That's what you like here? Yes. Yeah, so, so we own Clorox in our dividend strategy. Obviously, they are growing their dividends. And even though they're cutting their earnings, this is actually still a classically defensive stock. You know, the challenge to Clorox will always be, will, will be right now that it is a bit overpriced uh, relative to its average P.E. However, we think that over time that fixes itself. We think that's a price problem, not an earnings problem, not a demand problem. And so to the, to the extent that they continue to provide great income and right now, Cash is king. Cash is what you need in this kind of an environment. Um, that's really where you need to be. Quick follow-up to that. There are obviously a lot of uh, dividend ETFs out there. Would you ever recommend a broad-based strategy like that for income as opposed to an individual name? So you can do a broad-based strategy, but in a time like this, you have to be careful of what kind of dividend strategy you're leaning into, because there are high-yield dividend strategies, which tend to buy as things go down, so they tend to be very value-oriented. And then there are dividend growers, which actually participate in growthier names that also have high-dividend and robust earnings. Right now, we think you need to lean into quality. So we, we think that you know just playing the cheap names and buying the dividend yield 
yield um, is not a great strategy right now, even though value is performing. We think quality is what's going to persist over time as we get through um, the rate hikes. It's like the Munger thing. You want to pay a good price for a great business right now instead of a great price for a good one. All right, let's move along to NVIDIA, which is actually up nicely today. It was about 10% at last check. It's having its best day since November, but it's been a really tough few months. The stock's like 50% off the highs. Why is this a great entry point? So NVIDIA is, is in the semiconductor industry, and it's, it's supporting trends like cloud trends that are just not going away. And NVIDIA is getting quite cheap, even you know to its own average, but just on a on an absolute basis, uh, NVIDIA is cheap relative to the outlook for the industry. Um, and that demand, regardless of what happens with the Fed, regardless of what happens um, with demand, the underpinning for almost all demand going forward seems to be in the digital space. And that digital space is reliant on the cloud. That's reliant on, on semiconductors. And NVIDIA is, is easily the top player in the market right now. And we think, back to our quality theme, you want to own quality. This is the kind of name that will make it through the the rapids that they're that they're paddling through. Yeah, and one of the names leading the Nasdaq higher today uh, as the whole sector tries to mount a turnaround. All right, let's get to this name that you're bailing on today, and it's not an equity, it's a Bitcoin. Why are you bailing on Bitcoin uh, here? And and are, have you ever been a bull on Bitcoin? Or, or to, I'm curious about the backstory here. Okay, that's a good question, Kelly. I've never been a bull on Bitcoin. <laughs> However, I, I do understand that we will endure at some point a transition into a digital economy, and that digital economy is going to be composed of other ways of transacting. The problem I see with Bitcoin is Bitcoin was so highly overpriced by hype, um, but just also by excess liquidity. And that excess liquidity is going away, and along with it, with the help of momentum, all of the hype. Uh, and, and so it just makes it extremely vulnerable. Right now, I see Bitcoin as that excess uh, receptacle uh, for excess, excess liquidity. And as that liquidity goes away, the Bitcoin story just goes down the drain with it. And Michael Darda separately today uh, wrote a client note warning people that gold could fall another $500 uh, an ounce in price because of what he says are rising real rates. So it's a headwind for crypto, a potentially headwind for gold or anything else that doesn't pay interest. And I'm curious if you would also be bearish on the precious metals. Uh, yeah, I am actually bearish right now uh, on precious metals. They haven't performed uh, the way you would have normally expected a classic inflation hedge to perform in this inflationary environment, um, because it's it's just not the kind of inflationary environment that that that, that you know, that would normally uh, protect it. And I agree that that in negative real yields, and we're in extremely negative real yields, I mean, you really, really want to be in, in cash and something that's that is, um, you know, more tangible. Yeah, than that. Gina, thank you very much. Good to have you on today. We appreciate it. Gina Sanchez with today's three buys and a bail. Still ahead, despite today's gains, this widely held tech stalwart is down about 7% this week. Why everyone from Redditors to retirees should care. That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Apple are back up to 146 today. That's a 2.5% gain, but it's been a really tough week for the tech giant. The stock trying to avoid its worst week since March of 2020, in fact. Steve Kovac is here with more on this. I don't know if we say it's a surprise move. You know, in, in many ways, Steve, Apple was 
supposed to be the tell for the market. And maybe the only thing it told us this week was that it finally caught up to be as bad as everything else had been and, and was no longer this reliable old stall. Yeah, that's that's exactly the story, Kelly. Until today's rally, shares were having their worst week since they fell 17 percent when COVID turned the world upside down. And a thesis emerging among analysts, wait for Apple to bottom as a signal the rest of the market is about to follow as well. That's what they're hoping is happening today. Bank of America analysts today calling Apple's fall, quote, the definition of true capitulation when investors sell a stock they love. So you have a high quality company dragging the rest of the market down with it. And remember, Apple isn't just a major Dow component. It's wrapped up in 401ks, pension funds, ETFs and the like. The bleeding Apple saw this week is directly impacting wealth in all these areas. And since last fall, Apple was a safe haven amid a volatile market for tech stocks, and it held up relatively well among its big tech peers. And that changed along with the big leg down the markets took last week. All this is happening even when Apple gave plenty of reason to be optimistic amid a tough environment. It was easy to shrug off Tim Cook's warning China lockdowns would cost the company up to $8 billion this quarter, knowing demand for expensive smartphones is still through the roof. But Foxconn, that's the company that builds the iPhones for Apple, also said this week it's seeing demand fall for smartphones in China because people are still locked in their homes. And that's the thing to watch, Kelly. Demand slipping elsewhere in the world where COVID restrictions aren't as strict. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it was Mike Hartnett this morning from Bank of America who said, uh, you know, by some definitions, capitulation is when people have to sell their favorite stuff. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You and sell something was, you love. This yep. was the safe thing. This was everyone's favorite thing. I, I wonder, though, if the question is whether now we were kind of just talking about this. Is it going to be a different market? You know, Apple was the the banner marquee stock of the 2010s, practically. Right. And can, can we should we take for granted that it can repeat that performance this decade? I mean, there, look, Past performance, look how they handled 08, look how they handled the 2010s. We saw them just live through it. They have so much cash, and the demand is still so high for their products with more coming and new kinds of products. There are the glasses. We, we have the developers conference coming up in early June. So there are a lot of things and beats coming news-wise uh, from the company that, that could be a catalyst. When are we going to hear more about the glasses? Oh, man. We were supposed to hear about them in June. That was the latest report. If I had to guess, just based on my informed speculation, an unveiling in the fall with a release uh, next spring. Okay, that's that's so what I think. Still coming, but a little delayed. A little delayed, yeah. And, and that could certainly put some excitement back in the convo. Sure. Hopefully well before then, though. An iPhone on your face, Kelly. Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> Steve, thank you very you much. Steve Kovac. Coming up, it's the billion-dollar question. If Disney's special tax status in Florida is revoked, who pays for their debt? We have the answers and what it means for all kinds of muni investors next. And take a quick look at the NASDAQ right now. Absolutely flying. It's up 3.5% just off session highs. That's a 400-point gain. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Last month, Florida moved to strip Disney of its special tax privileges. In the process, they didn't answer one key question. Who is responsible now for paying back nearly a billion dollars in debt that was used to build infrastructure? Let's bring in Michael Rinaldi. He's senior director at Fitch Ratings. Michael, welcome to the show. And, and what is the answer? First off, hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a very good question. I mean, the dissolution of a local government is a, it's a very uncommon circumstance. And I think adding intrigue to the story is the fact that, as you mentioned, Reedy Creek has a billion dollars in debt outstanding. And it's also an essential service provider to Disney, uh, which substantially owns all of the private property within the district. Um, you know, Disney 
Um, they, they, they have a, a variety of services that they benefit from the existence of Reedy Creek. And also, you know, when you look at the, the extension of the debt, um, the state hasn't really left any path in terms of who will assume the obligations. Um, this hasn't really been percolating for all that long. It first actually popped up on our radar a couple of weeks back uh, following the emergence of a dispute between Governor DeSantis and Disney right. uh, over an education bill that um, has no connection at all to uh, the operations of Reedy Creek or any other special district for that matter across the state. So this is really an isolated situation, but one with, uh, you know, creates a lot of uncertainty if you're a Reedy Creek bondholder beyond the June 1st, 2023 dissolution date. So has the, first of all, what is the status of this dissolution? Has it moved from a threat to a reality? Well, I mean, the state has left itself some time to work out a plan. And in our opinion, our baseline expectation is that they will do so. Um, the idea that the debt uh, would, you know, be that the state would approve a plan that results in the transfer of the debt from the district to the counties, and essentially it's taxpayers, when you you think about the sequence of events and how we've gotten to this point in the first place, you know, it just doesn't really seem likely to us. Um, there's another plausible path, which the governor has in fact hinted at recently, which would re result in the establishment of a successor agency to you know, step into the shoes of Reedy Creek. And um, in fact, the governing board in that case would be appointed not by Disney, but by the state. And so if you're Disney, you, know, you lose some direct influence over you know, key policy and decision-making that they currently enjoy. Um, if that situation plays out, and if you're a bondholder, the question you have is, will a successor agency, say, have the same uh, powers and control that the district does today? Right. And will they be able to generate the same property tax and utility revenues that they use to pay off the debt? So there are muni debt holders uh, for the, you know, this existing Reedy Creek debt that might be moved to this special agency going forward. Uh, so is that going to make it uh, a better investment in the future, a worse investment? And what are the spillover effects for other muni debt holders? Well, as I said at the start, I think this is really an isolated incident. We don't view this as a precursor to the state becoming more engaged and involved in local government affairs. Um, in terms of, you know, is it a better investment or not? I think, you know, it depends on what the state's next step is. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, we don't see this debt being transferred to the taxpayers of Orange and Osceola County. Um, if you are a taxpayer, though, you know, certainly there's been a lot of speculation on what that will mean for my particular tax bill. And, you know, again, the, the state law doesn't really prescribe an allocation. But if you look at the district's tax levy, it equates to about 10 to 15 percent of the combined tax levies of Orange and Osceola County. Just sort of ballpark rough estimate. That's what an additional burden might look like. And, you know, many household budgets have certainly been pounded by inflation the last few months. Uh, that could be a tough pill for, for some to swallow. Well, it sounds like they're trying to come up with a third way to avoid saddling other areas with this debt, uh, an agency that might be able to thread the needle. And it will be key to resolving this uh, whole spat going forward. Michael, thanks for your time today. No problem, Kelly. Thanks Michael Rinaldi me. with Fitch Ratings. Coming up, if Senate Democrats get their way, federal, state, and local officials could soon be adding gas price gouging to the list of things they go after. This as gasoline prices hit a fresh all-time high today with few signs they're coming down soon. We have the details next. Welcome back. One last thing before we go. 
may not be on your radar today, but gasoline prices just hit a new all-time high in this country. If the market is any indication, the prices are also going higher as Arbob futures continue to rally. Now Congress wants to do something about it with a new bill. Brian Sullivan is here with a look at what is now being proposed. Brian? You said Arbob. That's a dollar in the beer jar, although you can't. So you do a coffee jar. How about that, Kelly? All right. These, there are actually a few of these bills going around Congress. This one, though, is the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act. Sounds nice. The law would make it illegal for any person or company to sell a fuel that is priced that is seen as, quote, unconscionably excessive. It would only kick in after a president declares some kind of an energy emergency. The bill's text says the priority is to go after companies that sell more than $500 million in fuels per year. But the text of the law does seem to allow states to go after things like a locally owned mom and pop gas station. So it's possible state authorities, not clear who, could go after single owner gas stations if someone, again, not clear who, determines that that station is charging too high of prices. Who determines too high? I don't know. Many Democrats are using higher oil prices and, yes, higher oil company profits as a reason that gas prices are at records. Oil is up, by the way, we all know, because global demand is higher than supply. That's it. For gas, just over half the price is oil. The rest, taxes, transport, and refining. And by the way, we have a serious refinery shortage in America, as well as a shortage of some gasoline refinery ingredients due to Russian import bans. All that, Kelly, kind of combines into a toxic combo, kind of like gas, of higher prices. So you do wonder, and I'm going to stretch a little bit here because it's Friday, if this or another bill like it passes, literally, could you have people calling the cops on gas station owners who raise prices because it's they see it as illegal? If so, that's not going after big oil because big oil companies only own 1% of gas stations in America. That's not many percent. Brian, Larry Summers, who at last check, I believe was still a Democrat, uh, just commented that this bill was as stupid as using bleach to fight COVID. Yeah, in an interview with, uh, with Bloomberg, I guess, a short while ago, he called it, quote, dangerous nonsense. I mean, Summers now vindicated for his inflation call. He was right when pretty much everybody else was wrong. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to saying that this is the same as injecting yourself with bleach because that's dangerous and, and stupid. This is just harmful, maybe economically. But you are sending out a message. Listen, politicians of both parties, Kelly, have millions of people's ears, kind of like we do, right? And if we're wrong, people are going to call us out and we have to go on the air and issue a correction, hopefully. That's, what, that's how it's supposed to work. I think if politicians tell a story that's not... Not wrong, but not all there. You can confuse a lot of people who then get angry. And, you know, as, like I said, you don't want people screaming at your local gas station attendant or gas station owner. Gas stations are a hard business. The margins are tiny, right? If you don't have a lot of food, you basically aren't going to make any money. That's yeah. why we make all their food now. I think if we're mad about this, go back in the past and figure out why the number of refineries in the Northeast is down by 50% in the last 20 years or so. Brian, we also, and the number of cars has gone up. We got as well the data point on the re weekly rig count. If we want to talk about uh, what the energy industry can be doing here to step up and increase supply, maybe bring prices down. What are we seeing uh, on that front? They're up, they're up this week. I think the number, uh, it's on my computer, ah, 216, I think, year over year. I think. So they're trying, Kelly. The point is there's no people. There's not enough frack sand. They're running half shifts in some cases. Maybe they can't get diesel fuel themselves, ironically, to run some of the generators they need. 
Uh, so, yes, rate counts are up. They're going up. Texas, really, it's all in Texas, is trying. You just need people, time, and money, and you don't have your 0 for 3 pretty much on those. Time yeah. you will eventually have, of course. So output is growing, just not at the pace to bring down prices. Kelly, it is possible, and I'm not going to make some hot take call. It's not sports TV. But there's a possibility there's going to be gasoline. There definitely probably will be diesel shortages in parts of the Northeast this summer. There's a good chance you can go to the gas station and they just don't have it. I'm not saying it will happen, yeah. but it's a darn good chance. Listen, I think people are becoming accustomed uh, to these new realities. Brian, thank you, Brian Sullivan. We appreciate it very much. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.